We'll hear argument next in case 08-1200, Germann versus Carlisle, McNelly, Reney, Kramer, and Ulrich. Mr. Russell. Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the Court. Congress rarely makes ignorance of the law a defense to civil liability, and the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is no exception to that rule. While it may seem unfair to hold defendants in some sense strictly liable for legal mistakes in the civil context, the accumulated wisdom of generations of legal practice has been that attempting to fix that unfairness uh, through a mistake of law defense causes more harm than it prevents. And as a consequence, in light of that settled understanding, courts should not read a federal statute to establish a mistake of law defense unless Congress quite plainly uh, makes that intent to do so clear. And in this case, nothing in the text, structure, or the history of the bona fide error provision of the FDCPA indicates such an intent. I could begin with uh, the text of the statute. It's not enough under the bona fide error provision that the defendant's violation be in good faith, that it have been bona fide. There's an additional element that the defendant has to show that the violation was not intentional. And in common legal discourse, a, a violation is not rendered unintentional simply because the defendant misunderstood the legal consequences of his actions. I, I think if reading intentional the way you just articulated is absolutely right. But when you add, I don't see what work bona fide error does in the statute if intentional should be read in this case to mean what you say. Well, I think it captures uh, the circumstance in which somebody uh, makes a mistake of fact, but does so and with not in good faith. Uh, But you say, well, intentional means you meant to send out the document, you meant to serve it. In other words, uh, no specific intent requirement. But if a bona fide error, it seems, doesn't make the activity not intentional under the traditional understanding of intentional. But I I think that's right. I think both provisions do separate work. And so that if the, the, if all it took to show that something wasn't intentional is that you didn't mean to violate the law, it would be very difficult to understand what work bona fide was doing in that circumstance. And I think uh, Congress included the bona fide uh, requirement in order to capture instances in which people make factual mistakes, but not in good faith. I really don't think that the, uh, the word that we're, we're wrestling with here is, is the, in, the word intentional. Seems to me it's the word violation. Does violation, when it says the violation was intentional or unintentional, does violation mean the act that constitutes a violation of the law? Or does violation mean the, the fact of violating the law? I think that is the central question here, and it is respondents' best argument. I think that the word violation is best understood to refer to the act. That's how this Court has construed that word in the statutory phrase, knowing violation, in a number of cases. And that's how the Courts of Appeals have construed the term intentional intentional violation in the Migrant and Seasonal Agricultural Workers Protection Act, which we cited in our brief. I did — we mentioned in our brief that it's a less usual formulation, intentional violation. And at the time we wrote our briefs, we weren't able to find any — cases from this Court construing that particular term. So, well, how, the part that's worrying me most is where the lawyer is the debt collector. All right? So he's within the Act, and he has a client of debt collectors, and the clients all say, please go collect the debt. And they say, we want to do this, like in this, I suppose in this case, they say, tell us to, t- if you don't know it, ask them to write us a letter to that effect. We won't collect it. Uh, now, is that legal? And the lawyer looks up everything in sight and says, yes, it's legal. And then that's what he thinks. All the circuits have said this. And then he asks the FTC, and they say, yes, it's legal. So there he is. Everybody's told him it's legal. And lo and behold, this Court surprisingly holds the opposite. Well, he shouldn't be liable. And if he has to worry about that, he can never defend his client. The only answer is, whatever the man says who's opposed to your client, that's what you have to do. That can't be the meaning of this statute. Well, let me address the hypothetical to make sure I understand it. If we're talking, well, first of all, if we're talking about a case in which they've asked the opinion of the FTC, uh, they're entitled to the safe harbor defense uh, because Congress specifically. What the FTC said is we won't give you one. Okay. Well, in that circumstance, uh, I think it's important to distinguish between lawyers who are simply giving advice to debt collector clients. They're not covered by the act. 
It's only when the lawyer engages in debt collection activities itself. And, and a lot of the time, the, de- the, the lawyer simply — Does litigation uh, constitute debt, debt collection activity? Yes. This Court held in Hines that litigation yeah. activity can be a form so of — he's a lawyer litigating for a client. That was my hypothetical. Okay. And in that circum- hypothetical, yeah. In that circumstance, I think, yes, the lawyer can be held liable right. uh, for, for mistakes. But to the extent this Court — It's not a mistake. Of course, it is in a sense — but any decent lawyer would say that's what the law was. But sometimes lawyers get surprised because courts don't always act the way they think is reasonable. And when that happens, their clients are almost never protected from liability for, because they did what their lawyers reasonably told them to do. And the anti- Why aren't they in good faith? The lawyer. And both. Well, certainly, because there generally isn't a mistake of law defense. In ah, but that's life. on your view of it. I am saying that the opposite view of it is that your view of it puts lawyers in an impossible position, let alone the client. Well, it, it's not just that it's unfair. It's worse than unfair. The lawyer is under an obligation to represent his client, and he cannot do anything but tell the client, just pay money to this particular plaintiff whose view of the law is totally contrary to every circuit court that's ever decided it. Now, how can you put lawyers in that position? I think the lawyers are not in a terribly different position than is, for example, the executive of a company that has a fiduciary duty to its shareholders to maximize profits and is considering a venture that could violate the antitrust laws. And in that circumstance, they have to make a calculated judgment because the antitrust laws don't have a mistake of law defense, and neither does any but other. But you're sort of begging the question there. I mean, the, the antitrust laws also don't have a bona fide error uh, defense, and the question is whether that includes a legal mistake defense. That's right. And my, my point simply is that you shouldn't read that defense as necessarily creating a mistake of law defense simply because you think it's so unfair, because that unfairness is simply because common. It, but it suggests that you'd like a a uh, sensible interpretation of this that avoids the result, I, I said, if, if possible. And there is a w- different way of going about it, which is you could say that a bona fide error in respect to a lawyer imposes much higher standards on that lawyer than it does on most, and it's simply a client, that before you can call an error bona fide, that lawyer really has to look into it. He has to have asked the FTC. He has to have gotten and made an effort to get a letter back. And if there are one or two circuits that hold the other way, beware. And if you don't, you're not bona fide. Now, that would get to virtually the same place, but it would protect the lawyer against true legal surprise. Well, I do think that if you disagree with us, that's the better reading of the statute. That's not the, the reading most courts have given. It's not the reading the Sixth Circuit gave in this case. But I think there's every reason to think that if Congress was concerned about the especially problematic application of this statute to lawyer conduct and particularly to litigation conduct, it would have expected courts to deal with that in a different way, and not through the bona fide error defense, which, after all, applies to lawyers who are engaged in the same conduct as lay debt collectors and to non-lawyers alike. It's a very blunt instrument for dealing with this problem. What, what if one, of the, one of the things you have to include on this initial communication is the name of the creditor, right? Yes. Okay. So let's say the bank that's the creditor is being sold or taken over, and, you know, you've heard that, well, they've merged, uh, but, you know, the closing date of the merger is two months later or whatever. It's just not clear what the name of the creditor is. So you, you're not a lawyer, but you're trying to collect the debt, and you go, you fill in, it's either A or B, and you say, I think it's A, and you fill it in, and it turns out that it's, it's B. Let's say that's a bona fide error, okay? Mm-hmm. But if you are sitting there as the debt collector, and you say, I don't know if it's A or B, and you say, I know, I'll call the lawyer. You call the lawyer, and the lawyer says, oh, it's, it's B. I mean, it's, it's, it's A, and, and you put down A, it turns out it's wrong. Aren't, you're in worse, a worse position if you ask the lawyer, than if you didn't, right? No, because in either circumstance, it would be a factual error. It would be subject to the bona fide error defense. No, it's, it's illegal. The lawyer looks at it and says, well, you know, the merger is not going to close for whatever, but I think it's still this bank, and it turns out his legal analysis of who the creditor is was wrong. Well, again, I'm not sure that that's a legal but assuming that it is a legal mistake, I yeah. think that the client is not. I mean, if it's a legal mistake, it's a legal mistake for the client as well as the lawyer. And I think uh, either one of them would be But if the client just says, I'm not going to ask the lawyer, I'm just going to make, I think it's A, it's a bona fide error, but it's an error, 
He gets the benefit of that provision. But if he asks the lawyer, he doesn't get the benefit. On our view, he wouldn't get the benefit under either circumstance because it would be a mistake of law and the statute doesn't cover it. As, and if I could finish who, my who the, who the creditor is, is necessarily a mistake of law rather than fact? No, that's why I, I initially told you I thought it was a mistake of fact, and it would be a mistake of fact for the lawyer or the client. And I think actually in that Well, is it a mistake of fact if the lawyer does legal research to find it out? Well, he looks and he says, well, it depends upon the date of the closing of the merger, not the announcement. Well, if that, and it turns out that's a legal mistake. Then I, I don't think the defense would apply, and I don't think it would apply to the client either. Um, but I do think that if you're especially concerned about uh, applying the law to lawyers and, and to litigation, it's much more likely that Congress intended the Court to deal with that in a tailored way by interpreting the substantive provisions of the statute with that particular problem in mind. Knowing that Congress didn't have litigation conduct specifically in mind when it enacted this statute, because at the time, lawyers were excluded from the Act altogether. And keeping in mind, in addition, that Congress presumably didn't intend the Act to unreasonably interfere with uh, litigation collection methods and the, the constitutional. So how, how, do, how do we do that? Because, you see, you're quite right. Uh, the client runs the same risk in antitrust law and a whole lot of other areas. Absolutely right. But once you bring the lawyer into it, the lawyer has what he doesn't have in an antitrust case under your reading, which is an incentive to distort the law in order to protect his own pocketbook. And that is, to me, a big problem. So you say there is, there is a, 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 uh, a way around that. And what? And that is to recognize that, as this Court held in Heinz, the Congress didn't intend for every unsuccessful lawsuit to result in liability on the statute. Plaintiffs have to point to some particular provision of the statute that was violated by what the lawyer did in litigation. And, for example, uh, if a lawyer makes a mistake about the statute of limitations, uh, some courts have held that that constitutes a violation of the provisions against deceptive practices or, or, or unconscionable uh, collection practices. The lawyer writes a letter to the client. The first thing a lawyer tries to do is to settle the case. Dear client, please send in me the money. And by the way, if you don't owe it, tell me in writing. Okay? That's what the lawyer does. That's a legal activity. It's at the heart of practicing law because nobody goes to court anymore. And, and though he will if necessary, so he's part of this. Now, how do we get out of this problem that I'm putting? I'm, I'm really looking for an answer to well, that because I think it's a big problem. Typically, I don't know that that's a uniquely lawyerly activity. Lay debt collectors do that all the time. But to the extent you think that Congress could not have intended that kind of activity uh, to be subject uh, to liability when somebody makes a reasonable legal error, I think it's more likely that Congress intended you to look at what provision of the statute are they saying was violated and construe that provision in a way that's consistent with your expectations about what Congress would have meant. Rather than providing, rather than, you know, taking the bona fide error provision to do that work when the bona fide error provision is much broader and would apply to all kinds of mistakes of law, uh, including having uh, this consequence of basically giving debt collectors the opportunity to take the narrowest possible construction of, of uh, consumers' rights, as long as the question is unsettled. The other reason to think that Congress wouldn't have intended this to be the solution to that problem is that at the time they wrote the bona fide error defense, uh, lawyers weren't included. So this could not have been Congress's intended solution to that particular problem. And at the time, uh, Congress used this language. It was borrowing it from the Truth in Lending Act, where it had an established meaning in the circuit courts as not including a mistake of law defense. And that remained the interpretation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act provision as well uh, for, for nearly uh, 25 years. It wasn't until 2002 a Court of Appeals uh, first suggested that it did not extend Counsel, legal mistakes. Counsel, if a district court were to say you violated the Act, this was a mistake of law not covered, but I'm not awarding statutory damages. I think because they Because in this case, just for the reasons here, you did something that six circuit or that the circuit law said was permissible, so you didn't do it. You did it intentionally because you did the violation of the act, but it was based on a mistake of law. I do think that that's a per- 
perfectly permissible exercise of discretion. Congress gave the district court discretion with respect to statutory damages, and that's another way of dealing with this problem. But what about attorney's fees? No. The, the attorney's fees is, is not discretionary in that sense. And so there are other structural reasons, though, uh, to think that Congress uh, knew how to make a mistake of law defense clearly and did not do so here. Congress did provide, in effect, a mistake of law defense to civil penalties. The civil penalties provision that applies to this statute, which is at 15 U.S.C. 45 M1, and it's quoted in relevant part on page 24 of the blue brief, provides for very serious uh, civil penalties for somebody who acts with actual knowledge or knowledge fairly implied that the act was prohibited. And I think that provision shows two things. One, it shows that Congress knows how to make an express, how to expressly speak to a defendant's knowledge of the unlawfulness of his conduct. And in addition, it shows that Congress treated knowledge of unlawfulness as an aggravating circumstance, as something deserving of special punishment, um, rather than, as respondents would have it, most of the time being a minimum prerequisite for any liability at all. Congress wrote this statute to, uh, to have a cottage industry of litigation. Well, Thanks I w- for attorneys. I would not say that. I would say that Congress wrote the statute in a way to encourage private enforcement, to be sure. Uh, it enacted statutory damages and, and, and fee shifting because it understood uh, that this was an industry in which there was a particular risk of very aggressive and harmful practices, in part because debt collectors don't rely on the goodwill of the consumers they deal with in order to prosper. And so all of the economic incentives in the industry push uh, people to aggressive practices, and Congress wanted this statute to be a counterweight to that. Uh, and as in many circumstances, Congress enacts uh, statutory language and puts up requirements and holds people to them civilly, because the, the, the general rule in our uh, legal system is that the risk and the cost of legal mistake is generally allocated to the lawbreaker in the civil context, context and not to the people whose uh, rights have been violated. And there's no reason to think that Congress uh, was an, acting particularly differently here. We were speaking earlier on about the words intentional violation, and I wanted to bring to the, the Court's attention the fact that after we filed our brief, and in fact last night, uh, we, we did find a case in which this Court construed that term, and we notified Respondents' Council in, in the United States. And I just want to give you the site uh, so you can look at it. It's Ellis versus the United States, 206 U.S. 246. The relevant passage is at page 257. It's a 1907 opinion from Justice Holmes. And it's consistent with the way that the Court has construed the, the phrase knowing violation in a number of contexts, including in, in uh, the criminal context where it's much more common for Congress to make mistake of law a defense to liability. I mentioned before that the kind of history of the development of the statute. Um, it, I think it's also worth noting, Justice Breyer, that at the time Congress withdrew the attorney exemption uh, from the Act, it was the uniform uh, opinion of the Courts of Appeals at that time and all the district courts, that the language of the bona fide error defense did not create a mistake of law defense. And again, Congress had no reason to expect that in subjecting the attorneys to that uh, statutory regime, that the bona fide error provision would be the solution to any special problems. And Congress has also shown itself to be attentive to this special area of concern. In 2006, it made a tailored uh, adjustment to the statute to make clear that uh, pleadings are not an initial communication triggering the validation notice requirement. And I think that demonstrates that Congress is is on top of this issue uh, and stands at the ready to make adjustments that are necessary to make this uh, legal system operate in a way that both makes sense but nonetheless gives uh, effect to their intent to treat attorney debt collectors on, on a par uh, with regular debt collectors who are not attorneys. Uh, I should also mention, Justice Breyer, to the extent there are some really intractable problems with respect to the Act's application uh, to attorneys, there, there is ongoing litigation in the lower courts about the Norr-Pennington Doctrine, about how uh, that the constitutional implications of regulating in-court activity apply to the Court's interpretation of the statutory provisions. And again, I think it's more likely uh, that that is the, the solution Congress would have intended, an interpretive solution. Well, maybe your colleague came, but how, so, so they, they define, a law, the reason a lawyer falls in is because he's a person who regularly collects or attempts to collect consumer debts owed to or assigned, you know, owed to another person. That, that's pretty broad. That doesn't come about till 86. You're saying the bona fide language there is before in 77. 
Yes. And, and at okay. the and I think then what — but I still can't figure out how we get this thing to work here. And, and you just came up with a new idea. Well, no, it's, again, it's the same idea that you construe the provisions in a way uh, that avoid the most troublesome applications of it to attorney conduct. So I was giving the example of state statutes of limitations. I, I think it's very open to dispute whether attempting to collect a debt on which the, the limitations period has run constitutes an unfair or deceptive practice, because it's not as it, — all it does is gives uh, the — the, the debtor the opportunity to raise an affirmative defense. And I think, you know, in that circumstance, uh, Congress would not have intended the, the statute to. So you, you need, I get it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Jay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like, if I may, to pick up with a point that Mr. Russell made, which is that the FDCPA is of a piece with most civil regulatory statutes in that it makes knowledge of the law an aggravating factor and subjects violators who know that they're violating the law subject to substantial civil penalties of up to $16,000 per day. But it doesn't completely excuse violations based on a lack of knowledge of the law. In order to be excused, a violation must have resulted from a bona fide error and meet all three elements of the bona fide error defense. Uh, we think that two of those elements aren't satisfied by the respondent's error in this case. First, legal errors, uh, for the reason Mr. Russell explained, aren't unintentional. Justice Scalia asked about uh, whether uh, the phrase, the violation is not intentional, is a signal uh, in that respect. We think that the work that that phrase, the violation was not intentional, does in this circumstance is to show that the portion of the debt collector's conduct that triggers the violation of the statute it was, it is what must be unintentional. Let me illustrate that with an example. Under the statute, a debt collector who places a call to a debtor at home after 9 o'clock at night may, may well violate the statute, likely does violate the statute. So what must be unintentional for that debt collector to make out the bona fide error defense is not that the telephone call have been, been placed unintentionally, but rather that the debt collector didn't have knowledge, for example, because of an error about what time zone the debtor lives in. Uh, the, the, the debt collector didn't, didn't know that the call was being placed after 9 o'clock at night. That is an unintentional error, and the, it is excused under the statute if the debt collector can also show that it maintains procedures reasonably adapted to prevent any such error. In your example, that couldn't happen, because if you're calling debtors, you should certainly check what time of evening the call is. So it, it, you get over the first problem, but then... On the second problem, the second, how could that possibly be careful procedure if you don't even check to see what time zone the person is in? Well, I think, Justice Ginsburg, if, uh, if you check, but due to a keyboarding error, for example, Arizona is entered as Alabama, uh, or uh, an error in time zone is entered in whatever record is being consulted by the debt collector, that's the kind of factual error, uh, a clerical bookkeeping-type error that, uh, that Congress had in mind when it created this defense. And it bears repeating that Congress has created this, de uh, this defense in identical terms in a number of other statutes. Federal agencies have construed the identical language in a number of other statutes. And never has Congress or a federal agency contemplated that one of these defenses would, in fact, encompass legal errors. Do we so know why, when Congress codified that law errors don't count, codified that for the Truth in Lending Act purposes, it didn't make a corresponding change in the others? Uh, we don't have a specific indication, Justice Ginsburg, why it didn't go back and revise every other statute that, ha that already had such a defense. But I think that the answer is simply that Congress was revising the Truth in Lending Act in a statute called the Truth in Lending Simplification Act. And the, the statute of which that was passed didn't make any other, any other changes to uh, non-financial statutes. It didn't reopen the Federal Fair Debt Collection Practices Act in any other way. In fact, the relevant portion of the FDCPA, Section 1692K, hasn't been amended in any way since Congress first enacted it in 1977. So we think that the relevance of the 1980 amendment to TILA is simply this. It's part of a uh, — uh, consistent pattern by Congress and by the agencies, such as the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Federal Reserve Board, that interpret statutes with identical or very similar bona fide error provisions to say errors of law are not what Congress or the agency have in mind. Even if the, even, 
Even if the uh, error of law is completely reasonable, let's say in this case the Sixth Circuit had a case directly on point, still it's just too bad. Well, I think, Justice Alito, that uh, that's not uncommon under any civil statute, that uh, when a court of appeals has precedent on point, that uh, there's always a possibility that that precedent will be reversed. Now, of course, this statute has a very short statute of limitations. It's one year. And uh, if there's uh, some possibility that uh, the law will change down the road, that short statute of limitations will prevent uh, most violations from being reconsidered down the road after the after the law. Also, clarified. makes it hard to use the safe harbor to get the to get advice from the FTC. Uh, I'm sorry, Justice Ginsburg. You're saying that the statute of limitations makes it difficult. That that if you have, you can you're home free if you ask the FTC, right? That's correct. But that's the only only way you on your reading that you're home free. If, well, if you ask and they answer. If you ask and they answer, uh, and they say that your view of the statute How, is how many times have they answered in the past decade? In the past decade, Mr. Chief Justice, they've been asked seven times for opinions by the debt collection industry, and they've answered four of them under the criteria that they adopted in the regulations that are cited in footnotes. So that's not a very realistic procedure to rely on, is it? Well, the debt collection industry seems not to have asked very many times, Mr. Chief And why Chief is Justice. that? Because it's a little difficult dealing with the FTC bureaucracy and getting an answer from them in a reasonable time? I submit, Mr. Chief Justice, that, uh, first, even if this were relevant to what Congress intended, the, how the Congress intended the advisory opinion process to work when it wrote this provision in 1977, that the debt collection industry, as we pointed out in our brief, if you ask the FTC for an advisory opinion and it sides against the requester, which, incidentally, in none of these four opinions has it ever done, in each case it's sided with the requester. But if it sides against, then the requester is on notice of the law, and the requester is going to be, as I mentioned at the outset, the requester is going to be in that category for, uh, of heightened penalties because there, it will be very difficult to suggest that you don't know so the you're law. saying that the debt collection industry doesn't ask the FTC, which would be a safe harbor for them, because if they get a bad answer, they, they may not follow it, and then they may be subject to heightened penalties. Well, I'm saying, Mr. Chief Justice, that, the, uh, that they would understandably prefer to ask their own lawyer for an opinion if, the, if the, this Court were to agree with the Respondent's position and affirm the Sixth Circuit. They would be able to ask their own lawyer, get a private opinion, and if the opinion is favorable, then they're home free under the bona fide error defense. If, they, uh, if, it's, an ad, if it's adverse advice, they may need uh, — even if they disregard the advice, they may never need to disclose the opinion at all, whereas the FTC advisory opinion process — clarifies the law for the benefit of the entire field. Those opinions are public, they're published, and — Well, but there are four of them. I don't care how public they are. There are four of them over the past 10 years. It's not a very reliable or or usable effort to clarify the uh, law and address the problem that the statute presents. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I submit that you can't look simply at the number of responses without looking at the number of inquiries. And I'm confident that if uh, this Court, as we urge that it do, reverses the Sixth Circuit and makes clear that asking your own lawyer for an opinion is not going to be a safe harbor defense under subsection C, that there will be increased use of of the safe harbor defense that Congress actually wrote into the statute in subsection Do we know what the time interval was? You said there were seven requests for for, uh, affirmative responses. How long did it take from when the request was made till the FTC responded? Uh, In the four that were granted, three of them took three to four months. Uh, The fourth is an exception, and that's the one cited in the uh, retail collection attorney's amicus brief. That's an exception because the request was originally submitted as a comment in a pending rulemaking conducted by the FTC and a number of other agencies. The FTC agreed to take that, co- uh, that comment in the rulemaking and act on it as an advisory opinion under the FTCPA so that it wouldn't have to wait for the other agencies to agree with its, uh, with its view. And so that one took considerably longer. But the, uh, the average processing time is three to four months. And, of course, the FTC makes a number of other informal uh, guidance uh, uh, avenues available if what the debt collector wants is simply a quick answer and not a formal safe harbor with the imprimatur of the Commission. Uh, one can uh, — the Commission has, staff has published guidance, and, indeed, the Commission staff is available over the telephone. And if that's wrong, it doesn't do you any good. If, if that's wrong, it doesn't confer the safe harbor, but that's up to the debt collector, Mr. Chief Justice. If you, if you want an informal opinion, you can get one very quickly. If you want the safe harbor, that requires the imprimatur of the commissioners, and that takes a bit longer. We, we don't think that's at all inconsistent with what Congress intended. 
Uh, and we do think that Congress intended that this be the primary avenue. And if you look at the advisory opinion provision of the Truth in Lending Act, we think that illustrates it. At the time Congress enacted the FDCPA, the Truth in Lending Act advisory opinion provision had only been on the books for a couple of years, but it had already filled more than 100 pages of the Code of Federal Regulations with advisory opinions. And we think that that's how Congress intended for the, uh, the law under uh, this statute to be clarified as well not in a way that effectively confers qualified immunity on debt collectors whenever there's an ambiguity in the law. We think that that's reinforced as well by a substantive aspect of the statute, which is uh, that Congress recognized, and this is in particular in the legislative history at page 18 and footnote 9 of our brief, that the debt collection industry is extremely aggressive and looks for loopholes whenever they exist. So the substantive prohibitions of the statute, especially 1692D, E and F are written in such a way uh, that they contain broad substantive prohibitions that are illustrated by examples, but those examples expressly are illustrative and not exclusive. Congress would not have wanted a debt collector to be able to say, well, gee, this, pr- this practice is not expressly addressed by the statute and has not yet expressly been addressed by any judicial opinion, and to say, well, that law is not clearly established. We think in- — may I finish the sentence, Mr. Chief Justice? We think instead that Congress would have recognized that the uh, purpose of this statute is to protect the unsophisticated debtor and that the sophisticated repeat players of the debt collection industry, if they want to clarify the law, should go to the FTC. Thank, Thank you, Mr. James. Mr. Coakley? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the starting point for discerning congressional intent is the text of the statute. Respondents submit that in a review of the text of this statute, all of the components may be read plainly to include the bona fide error defense to include legal error. Starting with the words that the uh, Court was discussing with Mr. Uh, Russell and Mr. Jay, violation not intentional, moving on to violation resulted from a bona fide error, then the maintenance of procedures reasonably adapted. The Sixth Circuit and the trial court uh, and uh, have construed this uh, statute on a plain meaning analysis. That is to say, they start with the plain meaning of each of those words and construe them in their context. They did not find an ambiguity. They did not find an absurdity. They found that each of those, meaning, each of those components may be squared with a, with a legal error analysis. Uh, petitioner even concedes with respect to the element of violation not intentional that our interpretation is, quote, not linguistically impossible, end quote. What, ha- what, what petitioner has done is to avoid the conventional uh, standards of, legal, of congressional, I mean, of uh, statutory interpretation, which is the plain meaning from Lamy, and moving then outward if necessary. And they've opted instead for looking at uh, unrelated statutes such as P- uh, TILA, then uh, going to the safe harbor, and then pulling the words violation and intentional out of the first prong, taking them out of context, taking them out of order, and then applying them to this maxim ignorance of the law. Um, even and also saying, and then this is what I'd like to have your response on, that there is no statute, federal statute, that makes mistake of law a defense. So this would be... Uh, highly extraordinary, and if that's what Congress meant to do, to make something that ordinarily is no defense, a defense, we would expect Congress to do so expressly. Justice Ginsburg, with, uh, they, that is their argument, that it is unprecedented. But their unprecedented argument gets them nowhere. That's one of the panoply of arguments that is outside the te- plain meaning that they go to, uh, to say, well, this is unprecedented. Congress couldn't have intended this. They, there were courts that read the TILA bona fide error to mean legal error at one point in time. So it wasn't in, unprecedented to the extent of that. And what did Congress do with respect to TILA? In 1980, they didn't like the interpretation that they were getting with respect to legal error from the TILA error, which is a totally different statute. And so they reacted by amending TILA to say no legal error in TILA. 
They did not correspondingly amend the FDCPA, which shows Congress's intent to distinguish the two statutes. Do you think before our Hines decision that they intended for debt collectors to have an automatic defense if they just called up a lawyer? And, and so a lawyer's opinion would give them absolute immunity from liability? Absolutely not, Justice Sotomayor. This no, I think part of the difficulty in this case, isn't it, is, the, is our Hines decision, which made lawyers debt collectors. And so now we're in this quandary about a lawyer's good faith. But, but if we start with what was understood at the time, do you think that this language was intended to give debt collectors immunity by simply calling a lawyer? Well, it was absolutely meant to protect debt collectors. However, that term was defined in 1977, which included lay debt collectors. In 1986, it went up a level when we added lawyers and the exemption went out. In 1995, it went up another level when we added litigating lawyers. But most certainly, it went back to 1977 and included lay debt collectors. And lay debt collectors didn't get a get-out-of-jail card free here by just pulling up the bona fide air defense and saying, I'm done. They're subject to the three rigors of the bona fide air defense. They have to prove that the violation was not intentional, that the violation — Call a lawyer. Pardon? Call a lawyer. Just Call have a lawyer sign off. No, but — Even if the lawyer made a mistake, if the debt collector relied, you know, I have a reputable law firm. They're well-educated. They tell me they do legal research. That I can assume that. So why don't I have a get-out-of-jail card? The unfairness of this — uh, statute, as uh, Justice Breyer indicated in his commentary with Mr. Russell, is, is exemplified by your question. If a lay debt collector calls a lawyer in the 1977 to 1986 realm and asks a lawyer for an interpretation of this act, and he, base, and he uh, relies upon that and uh, acts accordingly, per their interpretation, only applying to a clerical error, that lay debt collector who relied upon advice of counsel is out of luck if the decision goes against the lay debt collector because he or she has no error of law as a defense. So it goes up. The levels of unfairness go up as the time goes on. But that's true of antitrust defendants, too. But in this, <laughs> Your Honor, there is a uh, — there is a bona fide air defense that has been crafted into this uh, statute. Oh, I see that. Is it, is it, is it, uh, uh, what do you think of the idea that uh, your, your opponent here suggested that the way to deal with the lawyer's problem that I mentioned is simply read the substantive provisions so that there is no violation for ordinary legal activity where they have gone and asked the FTC or, you know, that all the things are against them, what you'd have to do. That isn't so hard to do as I, I first thought because the, the, the words that seem to make the primary words that uh, what is outlawed are the words unfair or unconscionable means. Now, I, I doubt you would know. I doubt that there are other words in the statute that forbid lawyers from doing anything that really shouldn't be forbidden. I mean, they shouldn't call people up in the middle of the night and harass them and so forth. But, but uh, you could read unfair and unconscionable means to say that where a lawyer is really hit by surprise. You know, all the circuits were against him. The FTC wouldn't give him an opinion that he no longer is acting unfairly and unconscionably. Uh, what Justice, about that? Justice Breyer, I don't think that gives credence to the uh, 1977 focus when lawyers were not part of the statute. Certainly your example heightens the unfairness of it once lawyers come in in 1995 through Heinz as a litigating lawyer. Certainly a lawyer has the, creates this irreconcilable conflict of in, interest that you alluded to in your t discussion with Mr. Russell. That puts the lawyer between the proverbial rock and a hard place. He either he or she either chooses to follow the law and uh, risk. Yes, that, that's right. I, I was seeing a special problem with lawyers. Call the unfairness problem that you're talking about, call that the antitrust problem. 
because it is just as much. But I saw the special problem of putting the lawyer in the impossible situation that you've just described. Now, it's with respect to that problem that he offers the cure of reading the words unconscionable and, what is it, unconscionable and uh, uh, unfair means, read those words to exempt the lawyer when he's in the dilemma I discussed. And therefore, the lawyer will not have an incentive to, to, to skew his advice. I believe that the lawyer be just subject to the rigors of the bona fide error defense the way any other debt collector as defined from 1977 forward. Would I suppose it would make interpretation of the Act a little more difficult. The same practice would be unconscionable in, in not unconscionable in one circumstance. You'd have an opinion saying this is not unconscionable, but yet if somebody else does it, you know, two weeks later, that doesn't have the same back. He says, well, look, it's not unconscionable, but it turns out it is in his case. And it would have to be, the opinion would have to clarify the law by saying, this is normally unconscionable, but we're going to say it's not here because of this activity that's unlikely to happen. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I believe that this would be part of the inquiry that a lawyer would be faced in, in trying to prove the affirmative defense of bona fide error in a legal situation, and that that would be part of the uh, good faith analysis, part of the reasonable procedures that he would present to the Court. Could we do oh. that in the context of this case? Because we're talking on a highly abstract level. This was a, a statute that required a validation notice, and for the most part, the validation notice that was sent to the debtor is exactly the words of the statute. But the lawyer added two words that are not in the statute in writing. Where did that come from? We're told this was not the model form that's used by the Debt Collectors Association. There was a case, Graziano, Your Honor, that uh, talked about the, the — was construing the statute and specifically Section 1692 G.A. 3 and determining — uh, because G the second pr and third prong of the statute had the words in writing, does the first prong, uh, in order to be coherently read, in, uh, mean in writing? Graziano says, yes, you should put in writing in in order to make a co coherent uh, — uh, It said you should, should rather than may? No. Well, Graziano suggested in writing is the only effective way to construe this statute. Otherwise, it makes no sense. That, that issue is still not settled, is it? That's correct. We, we still don't know if the lawyer here was right or wrong. That's correct. And, and that, that actually points out a, uh, the unfairness of this whole situation because my clients, the respondents, could tomorrow be sued in the Southern District of Ohio by somebody for because they took the words in writing out of their validation notice immediately upon being sued in this case. They could be sued in the Southern District of Ohio for not following Camacho or not following Graziano because somebody would conclude that that was the more effective way, reading of that statute. And if they're wrong, then the lawyer has no bona fide error. Mr. Cloakley, one of your earlier statements confused me. You, 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 you relied upon the fact that uh, TILA was uh, amended in 1980 to provide that legal errors are not covered by the TILA defense. And I think you, I think you described that as, as changing the law. To, uh, to provide that uh, they, legal errors were not covered. But as I understood the uh, situation, every Court of Appeals to have construed TILA prior to 1980 had held that legal errors were not, uh, were not uh, included, as, uh, as your opponent says they are not included here. So the amendment to TILA was just an affirmation of uh, the judicial interpretation of language similar to the language here. Uh, Justice Scalia, uh, there were cases, although not Court of Appeals cases, uh, that this Every Court of Appeals to construe it had held that mistakes of law were not covered. Is that accurate? Or That's not? correct. Well, then your, but, then your prior statement was, was very misleading. Well, to the extent that there were two different, analysis, uh, two different uh, analyses or interpretations that had emerged before 1980 that led the Congress to, in 1980, an, uh, enact or to amend TILA. Otherwise, 
uh, as, as pointed out in the Herrera case in our brief, if everything was so settled in 1980, why would there be a need to clarify the definition of bona fide error under TILA? And, and if it was clarified in 1980 under the FDCPA, then why didn't they take the step and clarify it in uh, the FDCPA from 1980 to 2010, especially when Congress uh, — There's no basis for saying that the amendment was overturning, changing the prior meaning of TILA. There's no basis for saying that. All you had were just a few district court opinions, and all the courts of appeals had come out the other way. Your Honor, the uh, the petitioner's position was that the case law was uniform at the time, and our position is the case law was not uniform at the time. There were cases that had taken an opposite approach to the Court of Appeals decision on uh, on TILA, and that is what led to Congress reacting in 1980 to specifically exclude legal error from the TILA defense, and has. Congress but why doesn't that just mean that Congress wants to confirm that the judges, the majority of judges, who who had held that it didn't that errors of law were not a defense, that they were right? It's not a cha- changing anything. It's just confirming that the majority view is right. Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg, the case law uh, says that the law has to be settled, and as we pointed out in our brief, it was not settled, and the courts afterwards have reflected that there was no settlement, and and that that's one of the reasons why the air portion of the TILA bona fide air was amended, was clarified, as the petitioner puts it, to say this excludes any interpretations of legal uh, of legal uh, of the legal interpretations of, of TILA, and then um, there was no uh, whether you call it a clarification, whether you call it a ratification, whether you call it an amendment, it doesn't matter. <coughs> Congress didn't then similarly amend the FDCPA to be consistent with their. Uh, well, why wouldn't one say now Congress has confirmed that the words in the Truth in Lending Act mean thus and so? Congress says that's what those words mean, and then go back to the other statute and say the same language was used, so it means the same thing, the same thing that Congress has just confirmed. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I believe that the the words bona fide error and the TILA statute were being construed, although not by courts of appeals, to reasonably read the bona fide error encompasses legal error. There was a change, clarification, whatever, in 1980 to specifically say bona fide error does not include legal interpretations of TILA. And that was then uh, never clarified, ratified, or whatever. Nothing was done to the FDCP at that time. And and, uh, the — Were there any district court decisions of any kind reading bona fide errors um, to mean legal mistakes under any of the other statutes at issue, the ones that were not changed, the ones that Justice Ginsburg is is describing. Well, under the TILA, there were there were co- under TILA. That's why Congress may or may not have acted to do. I'm talking about certain- under this statute, under any other statute that uses similar language. Yeah, yes, were there sir. any district court cases that were reading those statutes to include mistakes of law? Well, in this case uh, that we're here on, just uh, Judge Gahn from the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Ohio read the uh, read that uh, TILA. Amendment. But that was after the TILA amendment. That was after the amendment. No, you're, you're talking, talking at about the time that Congress was looking at amending the statutes. Under the FTC, well, the FDCPA came into effect in 1977, and uh, the TILA was in 1968. You're asking between 68 and 77. Uh, there were the Wellmaker case did uh, did uh, construe the uh, statute to include legal error. Do you think that a, a mistake of law has to be substantively reasonable in order to fall within this defense? And if so, where do you get that? Where, where do you find that in the statute? The statute doesn't refer to substantively or procedurally, uh, Justice Alito. The statute refers to bona fide error and the maintenance of procedures reasonably adapted. As a, as a, either a lay debt collector or as a lawyer-led debt collector, they must establish 
good faith in attempting to comply with the law as it existed. Well, suppose that a lawyer spends a whole week researching a question, but arrives at a conclusion that's plainly incorrect, does not, therefore, intend to violate the statute, and proceeds in good faith. Uh, How would that work out? Well, in proving the — It would be an unreasonable decision, and yet — would it fall would fall within your understanding of this provision? Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, he would he would uh, have that that lawyer would have to meet the three prongs of the affirmative defense by a preponderance of the evidence. If he doesn't prove all of the prongs, he's out. If he proves uh, all of the prongs, he's in. And if he creates an issue of fact on one of the three prongs, then he's going back to the district court for a fact-finding analysis, which turns out to be the work. You know, this statute has not proved to be unworkable. And if I could follow up to uh, Justice uh, Scalia's and Justice Ginsburg's query about the, uh, the, and Justice Sotomayor's, about the interpretation of the uh, words TILA versus FDCPA, I think a a review of the cases of the Seventh and Tenth Circuits is, is instructive because the Seventh Circuit was one of the circuits that, in, under TILA, had inter- interpreted the word to mean clerical error only. The Tenth Circuit, now, and the Tenth Circuit as well, now, today, under interpreting the FDCPA bona fide error, they have uh, abrogated that meaning in TILA and have come around to, this means legal error under the FDCPA. Could you answer one question for I'm just a little confused about one statute has the defense in expressly, the other doesn't. Is there a difference in the likelihood of unfairness under the two statutes? Why, is there a reason why Congress would have wanted to provide a mistake of law defense under TILA and not in this, this, in this case? Why, why would it treat them differently? There, uh, there are differences, substantial differences, uh, Justice Stevens, in the TILA and in the FDCPA statute starting with the purposes of the statute, starting with the construction of the statute. One, TILA has a criminal liability. TILA has lifelines that the uh, debt collector doesn't have in the FTCPA. T- uh, TILA uh, dealing, is dealing with disclosure of uh, financial information. TILA has uh, regulations as opposed to no regulations. I would think the all the, which way do these cut? I mean, the fact that there's criminal liability under TILA would seem to me to cut in precisely the opposite direction. You would want to provide excuses for bona fide errors of law, I would think. Why? Am I I missing something here? No, Your Honor. It's it's a a distinction between why, in trying to answer Justice Stevens's question, it's a distinction why TILA would be interpreted differently by then the FDCPA. But the question is, is there a greater need for the mistake of law defense under one statute rather than the other? I, I, I sort of given the same problem Justice Scalia expressed. Well, given the purpose of, t- of TILA and TILA dealing with uh, computational errors, Regulation Z, Truth in Lending, uh, they they, am- they amended uh, TILA in 19 19- — I'm sorry, originally TILA didn't have a bona fide error, and then they uh, amended it so as to — before it was enacted uh, — so as to uh, cover this area to provide for the computational error because it's so fraught with uh, uh, mathematical errors and the like. That is not the uh, situation in, in the FDCPA, and that is precisely the reasoning that is the Seventh and Tenth Circuit have noted, and in uh, the case of uh, Fry that we've cited in our brief has noted, as to the distinction between these two statutes and why one could be in, uh, uh, interpreted this way and the FDCPA be reasonably interpreted the other way. So, I mean, you're, the, the substance of your answer is that they're just two very different statutes. Absolutely. But, but I, I, I share Justice Scalia's concern. I mean, the, the ways in which they're different would suggest you need the um, legal mistake defense more in TILA than you do in the FDCPA. Um, jo- Mr. Chief Justice, I, I don't believe that that is consistent with the purpose of, of TILA. And certainly lawyers are not, uh, lawyers are not creditors under TILA. And uh, so that's a distinction between the, the two statutes. And further, the, there is an administrative penalty under the FDCPA, that, uh, the $16,000 a day, but the, the bona fide error does not apply to that. 
So there's no inconsistency between the administrative penalties under the uh, FDCPA and the civil penalties under the FD, FDCPA. And in, tr- and in truth, the, the, the statutes are, are, are significantly d- different. Can you tell me if you know, give you just a rough idea, of, of the percentage of instances in which people write to the FTC to take advantage of the safe harbor, and the FTC just says, well, we won't tell you? I do not have that empirical uh, evidence, Your Honor. I do know that the briefs are consistent on this point, and as uh, as admitted to by the, the petitioners, there have been four advisory opinions from the FDCPA, uh, from the FTC, in 30 years. How many have asked? I don't know how many have asked. I mean, it seems to me that's the obvious solution to the problem, that that, that uh, you hold that they are not liable for, they're liable for a mistake of law, but any one of them just write to the FTC ahead of time and, and uh, get a safe harbor. Uh, it's, so I, I don't know what we could do to suggest maybe that mechanism, which is built into the statute, should be used. I think that didn't, didn't Mr. Jay tell us there were seven requests? Uh, are you uh, disputing that? I'm not supu- uh, disputing that, Justice Ginsburg. What I'm basically saying that it is really doesn't me- make any difference because the the truth re- with respect to the FTC and the safe harbor defense and the FDCPA, the, uh, Mr. Jay uh, does not argue that one is superfluous to the other. The petitioner argues that one makes the other superfluous. Neither are superfluous to the other. All right, but I mean, if there have been seven requests and four answers, then all these horrible things that are going to happen, if you do say there is, if, unless you have mistake of law defense, aren't going to happen. Because all that has to happen is that people write to the FTC and they get an answer. But the, the safe harbor defense on its face applies prospectively. The FDCPA uh, bona fide air defense. That means, lawyer, if you're worried about this, go right before you do it. Yes, but the bona fide air defense applies retrospectively. The uh, I see I have the a copy in the Retail Association of Retail Collection Attorneys. The first second sentence in the FTC's response is, I apologize for the delay in responding to your request. It's not an atypical uh, issue in dealing with government agencies. And, and yes, Mr. Chief Justice, and the, and the penultimate paragraph in there, for the foregoing reasons, your request for an advisory opinion does not satisfy either the prerequisites prescribed, uh, and accordingly we can't be granted. Mr. Cook, why do you need a safe harbor if there's no storm? <coughs> I mean, what is the purpose of, of having this uh, procedure? However inefficient it may be, what is the purpose of having it unless you're going to be liable if you make a mistake of law? The safe harbor. Keep talking about a safe harbor rule. Who needs a harbor? Justice Scalia, as it's worked out, the the safe harbor is neither safe nor a harbor, but that's not the perspective that we have to look at. We have to look at it from 1977. It was for for prospective uh, course of conduct. It gives the debt collector categorical. What does that have to do with anything, whether it's prospective or not? The point is, what benefit does it give to the person who's asking? If the person is not going to be liable for a bona fide mistake, why would he ever use it? Well, there are reasons why a debt collector may use it if he has time and he needs the prospective uh, 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 letter from the FTC. In, in reality, a debt collector is going to go to the bona fide heir because it's retrospective, although there's risk with the bona fide heir because it's not the categorical immunity that the safe harbor uh, um, gives. And there's, they're not inconsistent. The safe harbor is not a, a statutory interpretation why you should drive a meaning into the bona fide air provision that is not apparent on its face. I would say in closing that, Justice Breyer, your, your comments uh, earlier are just right. This is worse. Uh, a, a reading uh, the safe harbor or reading the bona fide air to, uh, provision to exclude legal air is uh, worse than unfair. Oh, but now I do see a, which I, why I asked the question. <laughs> I, I, I asked to get an answer, and, and the, the answer now seems to be floating around the FTC idea, and it's seven letters. That isn't very much. I just wonder if the, if the uh, bar in this area 
and their clients, if they made an effort, might be able to get the financing for the FTC so they could have enough people to respond quickly to the letter. Well, Justice uh, Ginsburg asked a question about unprecedented. Uh, in, in truth, what would really be unprecedented here would be for uh, this Court to construe the bona fide air defense so that a lawyer or a debt collector who is giving advice to his client to follow a particular uh, uh, way of action and the law was unsettled for that lawyer to be subject to, uh, to be punished for personal liability, and uh, we think that the bona fide error clearly under Lamy encompasses. There are severe limits on the liability, aren't there? Isn't there a thousand dollars? A thousand dollar limit? Huh? Yes, yes, Your Honor. It's not big bucks for an attorney, is it? But, but look at what. Well, I maybe for that prior group that was up here, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's big in Cleveland. Um, this is this was a class action, wasn't it? It was brought as a class action? This is definitely a class action. This is a class action that wants all of the uh, validation notices that were sent out by this law firm to, that included the words in writing in it for that period. And further than that, they wanted the financial information from the law firm, the financials, because under the class action provision, it's $500,000 or 1 percent of the net worth of the firm, which is ever less. So the request was made of my client, give me the financials of your law firm, and for some reason my client did. But this, the statute was not meant to punish lay debt collectors, including lawyers. The bona fide air defense is the shield, and we ask the Court to affirm the judgment of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday next at 10 o'clock.